0: I want to read a portion of scripture, and it'll be the text that I will speak from in just a little bit. But it's the very first Psalm, Psalm chapter 1. And uh, if you would, stand with me as I read these six verses. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we come with great anticipation uh, of a time of blessing, a time of fellowship with you, to commune with you, to hear from your word, to take in spiritual nourishment that we can use in our daily living. We thank you, Father, for each family, each individual that's come today. We all come with various needs And I pray that uh, as a result of our time together today, that you will speak to each of our hearts and address whatever that need may be. Give us encouragement. Remind us of just how secure we are in Christ Jesus. Remind us of the dangers of walking the way of the wicked. We ask your blessing on all that we do as we sing. May we rejoice and sing praise to your name. And all these things we do pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Our God is stronger, God, you are higher than any other. And our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. Into the darkness you shine out of the ashes we rise there's no one like you there's none like you our god is greater our god God is stronger god you are higher than any other our god is healer awesome in power our god Our God God is greater, our God is stronger, God, you are higher than any other, and our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us, and if our God is with us, then I could stand against. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then I could stand against. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than Him. And our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. And our God is greater, our God is stronger, God, you are higher than any other. And our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God.
2: Father, we, we come to you just in awe of you. Lord, we come here this morning to praise you because you are greater, stronger, and higher than any other. And we need you to be those things. We desperately need you. And Lord, we come just to proclaim the glories of your grace this morning, a grace that is greater than all of our sin, a grace that is stronger than our will. Father, we come this morning just to lift high your name, your grace, your name, your renown are the desire of our souls. I pray that that is true in every heart in this room, Lord. We praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
1: I was dead in trespasses and sin. The prince of darkness then was leading me away. I was dead. There was no good in me. Your grace I could not seek and would have stayed that way. But God who's rich In mercy, He made me alive and He raised me up in Jesus to everlasting life from darkness into light. He made me alive from sin and death, He freed us. Oh, death, where is your sting? The risen King of kings, he made me alive, he made me alive, now I live to never die, death it would happen He died on Calvary Now I live Yet not I but Christ A living sacrifice For all He's done for me Praise God Who is rich in mercy made me alive, and He raised me up in Jesus, to everlasting life, from darkness into light. He made me alive, from sin and death He freed us, oh death where is your sting, the risen King of kings. He made me alive He made me alive He made me alive I will live my final breath to take The final step I make Will land on heaven's shore Where I live forever face to face The glories of His grace To sing forevermore Praise God who's rich in mercy He made me alive And He raised me up in Jesus. Resting life From darkness into life Invisible above, in beauty glorified. Through endless days, adored and magnified.
2: Amen. Praise the Lord. Y'all can be seated.
0: I chose the psalm that we read just a little earlier, Psalm 1, which seems to be contrasting the blessed man from the wicked man in different perspectives. Uh, it's a great psalm. It's a part of God's Word. It's, a, it's an introductory psalm in many respects the great Spurgeon. He said concerning Psalm 1, This psalm may be regarded as the preface psalm, having in it a notification of the contents of the entire book. It is the psalmist's desire to teach us the way of blessedness and to warn us of the sure destruction of sinners. This then is the matter of the first psalm, which may be looked upon in some respects as the text upon which the whole of the psalms make up a divine sermon. Now, I know you wouldn't want to hear a sermon on all 150 psalms, at least not at once. That would take a while, even for the great Spurgeon. But I said that this is a special psalm, not only because it's a part of God's Word, It's special to me because of how God used this to do something that I'm sure I could never have ever, ever, ever been able to do. Uh, I would like to tell you that I'm a Hebrew scholar, but that would not be the truth. But in my seminary days, which started 44 years ago now, what time really flies by, When I started my seminary days at Dallas Theological Seminary, my first reaction was, what have I done? Uh, I had never really investigated the curriculum other than to know that I wanted to go where all the men that I respected, I I listened to men who preached with such boldness and confidence and made the scriptures just come alive, and I said, that's where I want to go. And uh, I didn't read the fine print that uh, to try to become like those great men, <laughs> you have to have four years of Greek and three years of Hebrew. Uh, on the application, I had put, I had 12, they said, Do you have you had any foreign language training? And I said, 12 years. Uh, it was English. <laughs> and, and, and I was still working on it when, when I went to to school. But we had to study Hebrew because that was the language of the Old Testament. With the exception of just the few portions that are in Aramaic in the book of Daniel and I think Ezekiel, the rest of the Old Testament was written in in Hebrew which is the language of of the Jews and uh, uh, in one particular class It was the second year, actually, where we had started exegesis, first year grammar and vocabulary. Now we're starting to look at the text and interpret it and and read it and all that. The professor said, the major portion of your grade will come from one paper that you are to write, and I'm giving you 13 weeks to do it. And at first class, he just started reading out the the role and assigning texts. And when he came to George Margunki, he couldn't pronounce my name. He was a Hebrew scholar, and he couldn't pronounce a name as simple as Marange. He said, to you, sir, Psalm 1. And he assigned me Psalm 1. So for 13 weeks, I ate it, I slept with it, I cried with it, I wrestled with it. uh, I worked through it as best I could, and I wrote my paper. Uh, I did pass, by the way. It wasn't the, the highest grade, but it was a passing grade, and I wrote across it grace, because I felt that that was the only explanation how I could accomplish that. Um, in, a, in addition to the school year, the summers were free. And so during the summer years, when Glenda was free of her obligation as a teacher, we could do a little travel, we could uh, do things like that but we also uh, signed up for a program that the seminary was sort of operating. A lot of people in Dallas can well afford to hire people to babysit their homes while they're away. Sometimes it's their homes and their children while they're away. We had one job where we babysat for a cardiologist who had a nine bedroom, six bath, single story ranch style home in North Dallas, and there was a big vacant lot uh, between his house and the corner, and I went out there the first day with my golf balls, and I was hitting wedges, trying to practice for my next, you know, golf outing, and here comes a guy riding up on a horse with a, in a t-shirt and a crew cut, and he says, hi, I'm Ross, who are you? And I said, well, hey, Ross, I said, I'm George. I said, we're babysitting for the Urschel's. He said, well, that's good. He said, if you need any help, you just call. He said, but Lord, he said, pick up all them golf balls when you get through. He said, we don't want the horses trying to eat them. I didn't know. That was H. Ross Perot. And he lived right next door to to the people. But anyway, we were given uh, a family and a phone number. And we made an appointment to go out and visit with them. And as we were knocking on the door, I said, honey, either that was left over from a previous owner or these people are Jewish. They had that little menorah thing on, on, on the side of the door. We went in, and uh, their son opened the door, and if you look at a dictionary for Jewish uh, characteristics, this kid was there. He, he looked like he belonged in Tel Aviv. And I'm not making fun or ridiculing, but they, they do have some, some characteristics at times. And uh, Went and met his parents, and we all sat down. And I said, sir, I said, right off the bat, I said, you may need to know. I said, I said let me ask, are, are y'all Jewish? He said, yes, we are. I said, well, we're not. And you need to know that. I said, not only am I not Jewish, I said, I'm studying at a Christian seminary, uh, and, and I love Jesus with all my heart. And I said, if, if you want me to find somebody else, I understand. He said, no, no, no. He said, that, that's, not, that's okay. And the boy kept, in the corner of my eye, I could see that he, he wanted me to notice him. And usually when that happens, I try not to notice you. <laughs> and finally, the parent said, don't, don't be bothered by him. He just did this bar mitzvah, which is the coming of adulthood uh, in, in the Jewish culture. And uh, as his gift, they gave him a Hebrew Bible. And he's showing it off. Well, my pride, I hadn't had a course on sanctification yet. My pride kind of reared up a little bit, and I said, "Ah, oh, yeah, I got one of those. You, you have a Hebrew Bible? I said, doesn't everybody? I said, yeah, I got a Hebrew Bible. He said, well, do you have it with you? I said, no, no, I didn't bring it. This is, this is business. He said, well, I, we, we, they said, we'd all like you to read something. Would you read something for us? I said, no, thank you. We're on a tight schedule. And... <laughs> The boy took his Hebrew Bible, and he opened it up and said, Read this, and Glenda will be my witness. He opened it up to Psalm 1. And so if there's one page of Hebrew at that time that I could sight read, I read through it like I was a rabbi. And then I went back and I interpreted it like I was a good Protestant exegete. And they were wow. A Gentile who knows Hebrew, and I'm, I'm thinking, don't push it, George. Don't push it. They may say read something else, and there was there was nothing else. That that was it. We agreed that we would do the job. It was over a weekend. They had a the boy and they had a little girl, and they told us. They said, listen, we know it's going to be busy. You're going to school and all that, but. If it's possible, if there would be any time whatsoever that you could maybe sit down with our son, you probably noticed that he's kind of obnoxious. And we want him to be Jewish, but we want him to understand what other people believe. Would you be willing, if, if there's time, you know, I know it's, it's, it's iffy, would you be willing to sit down with him and, and share with him why you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> if, if there's time, we'll see what we can do. The minute they left the door and got in the cab, I said, son, sit down. <laughs> and for a weekend, I was able to talk with him and share with him the gospel about how Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he's the Savior of the world. Now, I could never, ever, 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 I don't think, have had that privilege had I not agonized for 13 weeks and learned how to read Psalm 1 in Hebrew, which is backwards. You go from right to left instead of left to right. But I was saying, God, why? Why am I doing this? What what will I ever do with this? I'm not going to be a Hebrew scholar. And I'm convinced that if I ever did nothing else, He was preparing me to meet that family and to meet that boy and to be able to share with him the gospel of Christ with their blessing. With their blessing. So it's always been a special psalm in my heart. And maybe you have your reasons uh, other than the fact that it is part of God's word. uh, You have your reasons why it's special to you uh, as well. And uh, I want us to, uh, as quickly as my, uh, my jabbering will allow us. I want us to, to go through the psalm and see what God can, can show us from uh, his word. Now, there are three movements through the psalm. Verses 1 and 2 is the practice of the blessed man. And in that practice, he will, first of all, do it negatively. And then he will do it positively. And then, verses 3 and 4 is the power of the blessed man. And then, verses 5 and 6... The permanence of the blessed man. And so the best place to start is at the beginning. So let's first of all look at the practice of the blessed man. Verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Actually, that phrase, how blessed... It could be translated, "Oh, the blessedness!" It's emphatic. This is a blessedness that that's difficult to fully comprehend. People who don't walk in the council, it's a blessing because people who walk in the council of the wicked are going down a one-way street to a dead end, and they're going the wrong way. It never works out good for people who want to walk according to, to the council. And it, it has to do with, you, you listen to them. You, you, you take their advice uh, at times. I, I always find it interesting to hear these secular counselors. They, they play the, the blame game. It's not your fault, it's your parents' fault. Bad potty training, or they put you in the wrong school, or they didn't do this, they didn't hug you enough. Uh, they never did the, the, the trust fall with you to show how much you could, you know, all the, it, they, it's always somebody else's fault, it's not your fault, you're, you're okay, by the way, did they bury all those people you killed last week, you know, but you're, you're okay, uh, it's a plural form, uh, uh, the word blessedness, and One scholar says in our language this may denote fullness and variety of happiness as if he had said how completely happy is the man who does not walk. And this phrase has not walked. In Hebrew it's a past tense but not without excluding the present tense. It's talking about habitual. This is something that is habitual. How blessed is the man who doesn't habitually walk in the counsel that is in the way of the wicked. He doesn't associate with them. He doesn't follow their, 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 their teaching, their, their advice. Uh, F.B. Meyer, who is was a great uh, scholar and student of God's word, he says, Avoid the company of the irreligious. You must mix with them in daily business, but do not choose their society. When let go from necessary engagements, make for the people of God. Uh, that may be part of what was behind what's said in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, about the early church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayer. This wasn't something they did every quarter. This was something they did almost on a daily basis. Uh, they, they went to one another. They, they, they mixed, they rooted themselves in the body of believers that was there in Jerusalem and would begin to grow. Eventually, in our day now, the body of Christ exists in just about every continent upon the earth. In college, uh, I had friends that were a year or two ahead of me and they said, when you get here, be sure you come and visit the Baptist Student Union, It's called the BSU back then. And I did. And boy, I found all kinds of good stuff. There was fellowship. There were people that were like-minded with me. They were believers who were away from home for the first time in their life. Uh, there was ping-pong, and that, that was big. I noticed our youth, they've got their ping-pong table. That's good. That, I want to challenge your champion, whoever he is. Um, but it was, it was a vital part of my life, being a part of the BSU. The activities, the Bible studies, the chapel services, the retreats, ping-pong, and maybe Most important of all, Glenda Merrill Fortenberry. She was there. Her parents and friends had given her the same advice. And there were people like her there. She was the pick of the litter. So I said, that's the one. That's the one. Uh, Lord, just show me how I'm going to get her. (laughs) And so uh, she says that she let me chase her for four years until finally uh, I proposed to her but that's a part of association. Don't be so associating with the wicked that they begin to rub off on you. You want to associate with people of like mind and then ask God to send you out to be an influence on them. We are to go to the world, but we're not to be of the world. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. question may come up, well, who is the wicked? Well, it's it's anybody who uh, doesn't think that God either exists or has any right to have authority over their life. You're not going to tell me what to do. I decide for myself what I want to do. And there are a lot of people that are like that because after Adam's sin, we all have to deal with that that nature which separates us from God. We're all wicked in God's sight. Um, And by the way, wicked people are not just dope dealers uh, or rapists or murderers or sexual deviants. Wicked people can be PhDs, medical doctors who will operate on you and and save your life. Uh, They could be the most respectable people in society, but if they're not born again, they're under the judgment of God and they're considered in his sight as wicked a second thing is that not only is a man blessed who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked but he doesn't stand in the path of sinners now this has to do I think with conformity we begin to conform to the world's values suddenly we're making decisions based on what they say is the right thing to do, or the best thing to do. Situational ethics, we begin to rationalize that, well, it would be wrong in one sense, but in the sense that I'm using it, it's really good. Uh, I want to be a surgeon, but I'm having trouble with with school, so I'm going to cheat. And that's normally wrong, but... For me to become a doctor, it's what I have to do so that I can go out there and help a lot of people. And so I rationalize. That's situational ethics. Jesuit casuistry goes back a long way back. Have you ever noticed, to me it's amazing, how many people justify abortion strictly because it's legal? You say, well, wait a minute. We're talking about killing an innocent child. I don't want to talk about that. That's for you theologians to debate. All I know is uh, the the Congress made it legal, and I have the legal right to have an abortion. And so they they want to to limit their perspective about decision-making to what the world says. And they want to latch on to, uh, it's legal. Alan Keyes, who ran for president a few years back, he made a statement I never forgot. He said, "We never have the legal right to do what is morally wrong, but we 're doing it. We're passing laws that are morally wrong, and then we complain, why are people so wicked? Why are people you know why are, are people rioting in the streets and why are they breaking and stealing? Why are they doing all these things well <laughs> It's because you've said it's okay to do it. You've legalized it. I mean, we've fought the battle with with drugs for so long, and now we're saying, well, let's just legalize marijuana, and at least they won't steal it anymore. Well, good luck with that. He says these people are sinners. Don't stand in the path of sinners. A fixed association. Sinners are those who miss the mark. To sin is to miss the mark of God's righteousness. It's the breaking of God's character, violation of God's character. It's the missing of God's uh, design in your life. Those who miss the mark, they substitute self-righteousness for the righteousness of God. Therefore, they become self-deceived. And they actually think that God judges on a curve. I don't have to be as righteous as he is. I just have to be a little more righteous than you. And so we put a premium on, what does society say about you? Well, they think I'm pretty good. Oh, well then, that's good, because you're better than a lot of other people. Well, in God's sight, there's no curve. He says there are none righteous. No, not one. Jesus didn't come to die just for the wicked and not for the non-wicked. There were no non-wicked. He died for all of us. You might remember the name well, see I got a couple of passages. Romans 3:23, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned is historical past. That happened. And then daily we fall short of the glory of God. We will never, ever measure up to the standard of who he is. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The name Jothiisman, does that ring a bell? Joe Theismann played college for Notre Dame, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) then he went on to play quarterback for the Washington Redskins, and he's a TV commentator now. He's a big dude, real popular. Uh, He was trying to explain to his wife one day why he had had an affair. This was his answer. God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Now, that's the way of the world. That's not the way of God. But how many people are you going to hear that that take that same attitude? I have a right to be happy. God has a right to to let me be happy. And so I'm not going to put myself in the straitjackets of this life. I want to be free. And the, the irony is that their freedom is slavery, bondage. Another name that you might remember, Elvis. Does that ring a bell? They called him the king. Uh, They say that his goal was to be rich and famous and happy. And near his death, he was asked, are you happy? And his answer was, I'm as lonely as blank. Here's a man who was filthy rich. He was famous so much that he didn't need a last name. He was Elvis. And yet, his life was empty. He was lonely. He had accomplished nothing other than what he thought were the greatest goals of life. He had nothing in a spiritual sense. The third thing about the blessed man... He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now this is a progression. There's a progression from just association to plugging in. And then finally you become one of them. You are in a place of authority. You're giving out the advice to others now. You've been converted and your mind has been swayed and pulled into it. It's an established resonance. You're no longer a spectator. You're in the game, as they say. And scoffers not only deny God, but they're antagonistic and hateful toward God. They're opposed to everything and anything that honors God. That's why right now we're battling about being able to pray in public and pray in school and and do things like that. Bibles, can can we give out Bibles in school? No. Uh, Creation. That's what you're going to be taught, and there will be no options. It's interesting that way back in the 30s with the Scopes trials, creation was being taught. And they said, we just want to offer another option, another alternative to be fair. And they got their way. But now it's evolution, Darwinian evolution. And if we say, well, can we teach creation as an alternate? No, 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 no. No, We're not going to do that. Uh, There's a, well, there's a couple of passages I want you to look at. It says, the Pharisees in Luke 16, they were lovers of money, and they were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. See, that's what they do. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That's why Jesus said in, in Matthew, I think, 5, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why he says in, I think, uh, Luke, uh, Matthew 23, he says, woe unto you, hypocrites. He said, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. You're like these tombs that get a, a whitewash every spring in time for the tourism. But if you could bust one open, and we happened, to, we saw one that got busted open one time. The cemetery is right across the street from where we live. We were able to look in, the the smell and the stench and it's black inside, and it's death. He said, that's what you Pharisees are. You look so good, prim and proper with your robes and your your beads, but inside, he said, you you are dead to the point of being double dead. Jesus was teaching the truth to the Jews. And the religious leaders, instead of welcoming him and embracing him, they scoffed at him. Well, his followers are still scoffing. They scoff about everything. In Second Peter, know this first of all. He says that in the last days, mockers, that scoffers, they'll come with their mocking, their scoff, their, their scoffing, following after their own lust, and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You keep talking about he's coming back. It's been years and years and he had not come back, and now it's 2,000 years and people are still scoffing. You really believe that he's coming back one day? Man, you're a moron. Yeah, I really believe that because the Bible teaches me that. Jesus said he would come back. He didn't say when, he just said he would. And I believe that he will. Uh, there is a subject that don't have a lot of time to go into it th- this morning, but uh, Darwinian evolution. Uh, it, uh, it rules uh, the day, as, as we can say, uh, in public education. It is the assumed fact. It is the, the uh, explanation of origins. Uh, uh, there's a, there are a lot of men who are beginning to write books questioning the validity of Darwinian evolution. And, and this one book is written by a man named William Dembski. And it's, he, it, he put together, it, it, he edited a book of articles by key scientists in all different fields, medical science, all the others. And he named the book, it, it's called uh, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> yeah, common, uh, uncommon dissent. Intellectuals who find Darwinism unconvincing. Unconvincing. This is a book about intellectuals who have a problem with Darwin's theory of evolution, and they're writing th- their their articles to to explain. In their different fields of, of, uh, of expertise, where the problems are, but Mr. Dimsky he says this: Darwinism's primary myth is the myth of invincibility. All of Darwinism's other myths follow in this myth's train. Darwinism, its proponents assure us, has been overwhelmingly vindicated. Thus, Richard Dawkins, you know who he is. One of the biggest liberals that ever walked the earth. Uh, He's had a sad life because of physical problems. Thus, Richard Dawkins has charged those who resist Darwin's grand evolutionary story with being ignorant, stupid, or insane. He's talking about us. We're either ignorant, stupid, or insane if we say, no, we don't believe in Darwin's theory of evolution. Um, There are others who follow in this same uh, train. Uh, A guy named Daniel Dennett, he wrote a book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. He describes Darwinism as, quote, a universal acid that eats away every idea it touches. Dennett, according to Dembski, is so smitten with Darwinian evolution that he regards it as the greatest idea ever conceived, far ahead of the ideas of Newton and Einstein. And they're pounding this into the heart of America and the world. And by doing so, they're just pushing God away. They're pushing God away. He didn't create the heavens and the earth. They just somehow, somehow... Over millions and millions and millions and millions of years, uh, it just all kind of happened. And more and more men are beginning to say, "I see intelligent design." It's just you cannot, you can't turn away from it. It's just too too complicated to think that it could just somehow happen all on its own. Uh, A novelist uh, named Barbara uh, Kingsolver. She wrote one book, Small Wonder. She describes Darwin's ideas of natural selection as, quote, the greatest, simplest, most elegant logical construct ever to dawn across our curiosity about the workings of natural life. (sighs) I mean, that's quite a sentence. Let me read it again. It's the greatest, simplest, most elegant logical construct ever to dawn across our curiosity about the workings of natural life. It is unarguable, and it explains everything. Well, there you go. We've we've solved that problem. But see, Dembski is saying that one of their myths is that they're invincible, and they try at every turn to, to stomp, stomp out any attempt to question what they're teaching. And if you do, you're censored. If you're in a public job, you're gonna lose it probably. You can't criticize Darwin's theory and hope to be a happy camper in the world. My own professor, who was one of the men that taught me what little Hebrew I was able to con- uh, retain, he announced, not too long ago, that he no longer accepts Genesis 1 to 11 as historically true. He now accepts evolution as the explanation of the origins of the universe, and he warns the creation community that if we don't get on board with evolution, we'll become the laughing stock of the intellectual world. But guess what? We already are. And I guess I would rather be the laughing stock of the intellectual world than deny the truth of what God's word tells us. I'm going to interrupt my notes at this point. We didn't have children's church, so I thought, well, this might be a way to have a little extra treat for our kids who are, who are all here. They're in this room. Uh, if y'all want to come down to the front, you can sit in these chairs or you can sit on the floor. You can sit wherever you want. Uh, Dempsey, in that book, he, said, he, he says, I've given you a reading list, but he says, I've left out maybe the most valuable book of all. And he says, I have a copy of a book by William Steed called Yellow and Pink. And I thought, wow, that's my favorite book. I love it. I've read it before. But we've had new kids come. We've had new adults come. I'm, I'm going to read it to you kids, and I hope that you'll enjoy it. You can just sit on the chairs or sit on the floor, or wherever, wherever you want. And uh, we're going to enjoy it together. It's not a long book, lots of pictures. That makes it, makes it good. There you go, Yellow and Pink by, by William Stig. Um All right, here we go. Two small figures made of wood were lying out in the sun one day on an old newspaper. One was short, fat, and painted pink. The other was straight, thin, and painted yellow. It was hot and quiet, and they were both wondering. After a while, the yellow one sat up and focused his gimlet eyes on the pink one. Do I know you? He asked. "'I don't think so,' Pink answered. "'Do you happen to know what we're doing here?' asked Yellow. "'No,' said Pink. "'I don't even remember getting here.' "'Me neither,' said Yellow, looking all around. "'There were chickens busy pecking a little way off "'further back in the field and some dreamy cows. "'I can't help wondering,' he went on, "'how we got here. "'It all seems new and strange.' Who are we? Pink really wanted to know. Pink looked yellow over. He found yellow's color, his well-chiseled head, his whole form admirable. That means he liked it. Someone must have made us, he said. How could anyone make something like me so intricate, so perfect, yellow asked, or for that matter, like you? And wouldn't we know who made us? since we had to be there when we got made. And why, Yellow added, would he leave us like this, with no explanation? I say we're an accident. Somehow or another, we just happened. Pink couldn't believe what he heard. He started laughing. You mean these arms, I can move this way and that? This head that I can turn in any direction? This breathing nose? These walking feet? All of this just happened? by some kind of fluke? That's preposterous. Don't laugh, said Yellow. Just stop and reflect. With enough time, a thousand, a million, maybe two and a half million years, lots of unusual things could happen. So why not us? Because it's impossible. It's absolutely out of the question. How could we just happen? Would you mind explaining Yellow got up and began pacing. He kicked a pebble aside. Well, it could be something like this. I'm not saying exactly. Suppose a branch broke off a tree and fell on a sharp rock in just the right way so that one end split open and made legs. So there, you have legs. Then winter came and this piece of wood froze. And the ice split the mouth open. There's your mouth. Then maybe one day a big hurricane took that piece of wood and sent it tumbling down a rocky hill with little bushes. And it got bumped and chipped and brushed and shaped this way and that. Sand blowing in the wind might have helped with the smoothing. That piece of wood could have hung around at the bottom of that hill for aeons. That means a long, long time. Until one day, zing, lightning struck in such a way as to make arms, fingers, toes. All right, Pink interrupted. What about eyes? What about ears? What about nostrils? Yellow sat down on a stone to do more thinking. Eyes, he said, could have been made by insects boring in or by woodpeckers, maybe even by hailstones of exactly the right size, Hitting repeatedly in just the right places. Hmm, said Pete. He clasped his hand behind him. How come we can see out of these holes the woodpecker made and hear? Because that's what eyes and ears are for, dummy. What else would you do with them? Those cows over there see with their big eyes. This ant sees with his teeny eyes. We see with ours. Okay, said Pete, let's say you're right, just for the sake of conversation. Do you mean to tell me all these odd things happen not only once, but twice? So that there's two of us? The branch fell off the tree, it hit the rock, it rolled down the hill, lightning struck, the woodpecker pecked, etc., etc.? Why not, said Yellow? In a million years, I didn't say five seconds. The same thing could easily happen twice over. A million years takes a very long time. Branches do break. Winds are always blowing. There's always some lightning and some hail and so forth and so on. But you and I are so different, said Pink. How come? That only proves what I'm saying, cried Yellow. It's all accidental. You're probably a different kind of wood. You must have rolled down a different kind of hill, a soft, mushy one, perhaps. Pink was not satisfied. You adults aren't supposed to be listening. Pink was not satisfied with these explanations. He suddenly gave Yellow a challenging look. Explain this, he said. How come we're painted the way we are? Yellow took a few circular turns pondering his question. The paint, he muttered, the paint. Well, suppose when we roll down those hills, or whatever it was we roll down, we roll through some paint someone had spilled. Pink for you, and yellow for me. It came out so neat and symmetrical, Pink said, with perfect edges in just the right places, and there were drop, three drops of white paint in a straight line for my buttons and three black drops for yours? What about that, my yellow friend? Yellow was silent. He leaned against a tree stump, scratching his wooden head. I can't answer all the questions, he said finally. Some things will have to remain a mystery, maybe forever. But why are we arguing on such a fine day? Just then, a man who needed a haircut came shambling along, humming out of tune. By the way, when my wife saw that man, she said, you need a haircut. Let me say it again. Just then, a man who needed a haircut came shambling along, humming out of tune. He picked up pink and looked him over. Then he picked up yellow and looked him over. Nice and dry, he said. He tucked them both under his arm and headed back where he'd come from. Who is this guy? Yellow whispered in Pink's ear. Pink didn't know. The end. Now what do you think is happening? Y'all can go back to your chairs now. Thanks for, for coming. What was Mr. Steeg trying to tell children or anybody who reads his book? He's got two people and one guy has got questions. I don't know. I want to know, but I don't know. How did we get here? Who are we? The other guy's got all the answers, and all of his answers eventually involve well, if they have enough time, anything could happen, you know. And you fell down a tree. You're a different kind of wood. You fell through different color paint, but he, but he's got most answers, but but not not satisfying answers. He, Mr. Steig, is trying to show you the uh, the dumbness of evolution. That's, that's what it says. And in, in reality, at the end of the book, what is the truth? Where did those guys come from? That man made them and he painted them and he put them out to dry in the sun. And now he's claiming what he made and taking it back into his house. In reality, we were the product of intelligent design. and. We want to call that God. God created the heavens and the earth, and God created all that is in them. Well', coming back to our text of Psalm 1. Did you see the progression? We walk in the council of the wicked. Uh, we stand uh, We walk in the council of, of, of the wicked. Uh, we stand in the path of sinners. And then he sits in the seat of scoffers. Three verbs that denote three acts of posture of a walking man. It expresses the entire course of life and conduct. Successive stages of deterioration of a man being absorbed into the world system. God says the blessed man is the guy that doesn't have that problem. He's come out of that. He belongs to God now through his redemption in Christ Jesus. And so he now wants to talk about the positive, the positive side. Um, uh, yeah. I've got to back up. Verse 2, But his delight, in contrast to the negative things of the, the man of the world, The blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He delights in God's word. It's not duty. We don't come to church out of duty. We don't read our Bibles when we're home out of duty. We do it out of delight. Because when we dig into God's word, he shows us things that we either have never seen before or things that we need. To enforce our walk of faith as we are in the world, but not of the world. We have a distinction in this world. We belong to God. We've been redeemed through grace. And the word of God is his love letter to us. It tells us about who we are. It tells us about who he is. It tells us about what he did for us because of sin. And it talks about what he will one day do when he returns to gather his people and take them out of this world into the heaven that is prepared for all eternity. So, positively, the blessed man delights in God's word. Alan Ross, who was another one uh, uh, taught one of my Hebrew professors, Uh, he, He lives here in Birmingham now, by the way. He says, A godly person is influenced not by unrighteous people, but by his meditation on the word of God. Such meditation necessarily involves study and retention. This is possible only if he had a desire to do so, here referred to as a delight. The psalmist found direction, not drudgery, from the law of God. The word of God was positive to him. It gave him direction. It gave him encouragement. It taught him about his God. It taught him all the things that he needed to know to deepen and to to uh, make his walk with God more intimate day by day by day. And so his attitude toward the Bible is just the opposite from the man of the world. <laughs> the Bible, that was written a long time ago and it's irrelevant. Uh, we don't, we don't abide by that anymore. I went to see someone a few years ago because uh, they were upset. They, they thought that I had wronged them. And, and I wanted to go and, and, and apologize for it. And uh, at first they wouldn't even let me in. And finally when they let me in and I told them why I'd come, they said, you don't think people really do this anymore. Go see people and ask for forgiveness and all that. I said, well, sure, I believe that's why I'm here. The Bible is not irrelevant. It it transcends cultures. It transcends uh, the ages. He meditates day and night. That's the picture of a cow chewing her cud. I I looked up on on Wikipedia, and a cow is a very interesting animal. Uh, It doesn't eat meat, I found out. It, It only eats grass and hay and stuff like that. It's a herbivore, not a carnivore. And after it gobbles up a whole bunch of stuff and puts it down in its first part of the stomach, then it goes and sits in the shade somewhere, and then uh, up it comes. And that's the cud. And then it starts chewing it, and chewing it, and chewing it. Uh, My son Andrew used to do that. We'd we'd make him eat his... clean your plate, finish that, so he would put it all, he'd go to bed in the morning when he woke up, he had a gob of food that he had never swallowed, and we had to, we had to deal with that, but after he goes and sits the cow, chews it, and chews it, and chews it, and, chews it and mashes uh, all the nutrition and everything out of it, uh, that, that can be immediately absorbed uh, down through the throat, and then he swallows it again, and then it gets back in the stomach, and then it goes through three or four other chambers until finally it eliminates uh, what, what's, what's left of it. But it's a, it's a marvelous process to see how a cow uh, nourishes uh, herself or, or, or himself. And that's the picture that the psalmist uses. We don't just read the word, okay, I read, I'm gone. No, but we, we meditate upon it. We ponder it. We put it through the the digestive process. We want to master the word so that the word will master us and control us in our conduct. James maybe says a little bit about this. He says, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Uh, Glenda... Gets on me all the time. We're getting dressed, and I'll put my shirt on, my pants, and I'll go in a bathroom. We have a big mirror, and I'll look okay. And then she'll say, "Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, hey, Get a wet rag and wet that hair down, and get that down, and stick it up here, and, and put some cream on this brown spot, and and do this and do that." And and, and I start looking at and say, "Oh yeah, I, I got." If you look intently, you'll see things that need attention. But if you just take a glance, "Ah, I'm okay, and off you go. And and you forget what, what, what you look like. And it's through the word that we address our needs. God feeds us through his word. He says he does this day and night. And that's not saying 24 hours a day. But it does mean that it's the totality of life. This is not something you do on Sunday morning. In the next six days, you do whatever you want. No, it's every day. You you make time every day to let God feed you through his word. And you, you chew that and chew it so that you can get all that there is, all that God can teach you from it. The psalmist says, Thy word have I hidden my heart, that I might not sin against God. I've, so many times, I've been in a situation, and suddenly, God would just put on my screen, in the back of my head, a portion of his word, that addresses the issue I'm facing. And if I hadn't studied that, and, and, and put it in, then the spirit would not have been able to use it, the way he did, in, in the moment, uh, when you go out and witness, you say, Lord, help me. Help, help me to know what to say. He does that uh, in so many, so many ways. Uh, I can find no plan in God's word to grow spiritually apart from his word. Now that, That's a radical statement, but I'll stand on it. I find no plan in God's word to grow spiritually apart from his word. If, if somebody has got that plan, they didn't get it from the Bible. People that grow spiritually are in touch with the Word of God because they're being nourished by it. And God is using that to help them grow and to be mature, to be discerning. I've never really set out to just memorize Scripture. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I have spent so much time Studying Scripture as a student and as a pastor, there are large portions of it that I I can p- recall for memory, uh, and I, I recommend that to you. Just study it every day, and you'll find that you're going to be learning an awful lot of it. It'll it'll be retained. Well, we got to move on. Time time is way gone. Uh, the second part is the power of the blessed man, and. He, he uses the analogy of the tree. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. He's saying that you'll be firmly rooted near the streams, spiritual streams. He puts himself in a posture where he is feeding himself spiritually just as you would feed yourself physically. Our front yard for years, if I didn't water it every day, part of it would just turn yellow and then turn brown. And we had to dig part of it up one day because the water line got bust, uh, was busted. And when they dug up the yard to fix the water line, you know what they discovered? The builder had dumped all of his waste, all the rubble and broken bricks, shingles. He dumped it in the yard and then covered it, and put grass on top of it. So that, that part of the yard, it had no root system. It couldn't, the, the grass could not develop its, its root system. And it had to be watered every day. The rest of it, you'd water it, and it would go you know, for, for a while because it had a better root structure, a better root system. Uh, he's productive. He bears fruit. That's the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. It's not always immediate. But there is fruit. He's faithful. God's trees are evergreens, J. Vernon <laughs> McGee used to say. The blessed believer, he never loses his testimony. They don't wither. Uh, there was a church in New York City over the, ga- uh, the entrance. They had the gate of heaven, and underneath was a temporary sign that said, close during July and August. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that they weren't saying you can't go to heaven during July and August, but the sign just was confusing. Again, I'll quote McGee. Outward prosperity, he says, if it follows close walking with God, is sweet. As the cipher when it follows a figure adds to the number, though it be nothing by itself, the important thing is to have Christ. That's number one. All material blessings are zero. If you don't have one before your zeros, you have only a goose egg, friend. But if you put that one, who is Christ, before your material blessings, then you are blessed indeed. But remember that he has not promised material blessings in this age. That's not the mark of the church age. You may have material blessings. Thank the Lord. But it's the spiritual blessings that are the priority. That's the blessings that will help us to grow. Um, The wicked, he says, are not so, in verse 4. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Years ago, you would cut your wheat, harvest your wheat, and then you would take it and throw it in the air on a windy day. And the wheat kernels were dense and heavy; they would fall back into the, the bowl. The chaff, which was dried weeds and everything else, the wind would just blow it away. That's how you you, you purified. That's how you separated your wheat from all the the impure objects that would be uh, in it. He said, "That's the wicked. They're like chaff. The wind just drives them away. They accomplish nothing. They have nothing. They have no eternal." future, whatsoever. And that brings us to our final section, the permanence of the blessed man. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now, the wicked will not stand. That doesn't mean they'll sit. That's not the way he's using that word. He's saying that they will have no defense in that judgment. There'll be no Matlock. There'll be no Perry Mason. Linda and I, we we kid each other. How in the world can the district attorney in Atlanta keep his job? He has never, ever beaten Matlock. And the same thing in California, in Los Angeles. How can Hamilton Berger maintain his job? Every time he goes up against Perry Mason, he loses. Every time. (laughs) and there'll be no Matlock and no Mason at the judgment. Uh, For the Lord, well, let me hold off on that. Um, There is a a portion of Scripture that does talk about this final judgment. Revelation 20, he says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. And what did the books say? They said, you're a sinner. See, this is your life, shows that you are a sinner. And they would judge from the books, because there are degrees of judgment, just like there are degrees of reward. But then there's the the single book, the singular book, which is the book of life. And it says uh, right at the end, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The books, plural, verify that you are a sinner. And the book of life verifies that you have not put your trust in Christ. You're not one of God's. Therefore, you will be a part of that judgment. Uh, And uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In chapter 3, he says, apart now from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's the blessed man. John 3 He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So this psalm talks about the practice of the blessed man. What he doesn't do and what he does do. It talks about the power of the blessed man. He's empowered by God. Spiritual prosperity through his relationship to God and through the word of God. And the permanence of the blessed man. He has an eternal relationship to God by grace. So the true secret to happiness is to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, you say, I don't have a personal relationship with God. And God is convicting you, and He's shown you that Jesus, His Son, died for your sin. Then talk to God. Thank Him. That you can believe. Because salvation is by believing. Not by behaving. And you can join the company of those who are considered blessed men and women. We're blessed because of the relationship we have with the God of glory. And he knew us from the very from the foundation of the world. And one day we will be face to face with him to enjoy him. Father, I do thank you that it's possible to be a blessed individual. But it's not by the way of the world. The ways of the world only lead to death. But we can be blessed as we follow you, as we follow your word and make it the resource for all of our decisions, all of our values. And I thank you Father that it's an eternal relationship we did nothing to merit it. It's all your work. Therefore, we can do nothing to forfeit it. It's by grace. And we're saved by grace, Lord, and we realize we walk by grace, through faith. May we have success. May we find ourselves moving forward and seeing the evidences of maturity and, and the hunger and the desire. To know you even more. Day by day by day. In Jesus name. Amen.
2: Amen. Let's all stand. As we close in song.
1: You stood before. in your head you spoke the earth into Upon your shoulders, my soul now to stay. So what could I say? Oh, I'll stand with arms oh, high and heart, and heart abandoned in all of the one who gave it, gave it all. And I'll stand, my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all. My soul, Lord, to you surrendered, all I
2: have is yours.